Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, we're going to be continuing and hopefully completing the series we've been doing recently of reviewing an anti-Calvinistic sermon. Now, this sermon is preached by a man named Yankee Arnold, and uh, we have uh, been looking at this sermon that was titled Five Dangers of Calvinism. I've done three previous episodes, and hopefully, again, this is going to be the fourth and last in this series. I was talking to some people at church on Sunday who are following this, and uh, including with the man who was really the reason for the series, a fellow who had asked me uh, what my re- reaction was to this video. Someone had shared it with him, and I told him uh, that I would try to do a review of it. And so I've been doing that, uh, and it's uh, been appreciated by him, and I'm, I'm glad of that, and has given us some good ground for some conversation. Uh, in reviewing this video, we've seen that not only is there a question at stake about uh, the sovereignty of God is salvation, but also what the perseverance of the saints uh, is. If we persevere in the faith, is it our work or is it God's work? And we believe that both salvation and perseverance in the faith is a work of God. Uh, one of the other key things we have noted is the importance of the doctrine of regeneration, that when God saves a man, that he transforms him, he changes his heart, Uh, Like Lydia in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to heed the things that were spoken by Paul. And so there's a change of heart. There's a change of nature. Um, It's not complete in this life because uh, we're not yet in the state of glory, but there is a work of progressive sanctification. And uh, this we sort of have uncovered this as we've gone through it. This is another aspect of the Bible's teaching that Pastor Arnold seems to be denying. Well, again, um, I I hope that we can uh, listen in and complete this series today. I think there's about 11 or so minutes left. And so without any further ado, uh, I'm going to pull this up. And let me just say once again, I've just got my Bible in front of me. I've got some notes. I have my my a Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, and also have a copy of the little book that I've written that's available on Amazon on the doctrines of grace, an introduction to the five points of Calvinism. And if this is something you weren't previously aware of, a teaching in scripture you weren't aware of, I would commend uh, my book to you. Uh, so let's go ahead and again, see if we can pull up Pastor Arnold's message here on YouTube, Five Dangers of Calvinism. We're going to pick it up here at about the 38 minute, 50 second mark. And um, and so let me just uh, uh, say where we are. Uh, you might remember if you listened to the last episode, he had been talking about Romans 9 and he had tried to give an alternative explanation uh, to the understanding of the potter and clay uh, image that Paul uses in Romans 9, beginning in verse 21. And he gave, I I think, a very fanciful uh, explanation of it. He said it's not about the potter being sovereign over the clay, but it's really about the sovereignty of the clay. The clay can change itself. The clay can make itself malleable. The the clay can allow the potter to work upon it. And uh, I suggested, I think, last time that uh, that interpretation just doesn't work on a plain sense level. Paul was saying that that God is like the potter. And the potter is sovereign over the clay. The clay doesn't dictate to the potter, uh, but the the potter is sovereign and he takes the clay and shapes it and uses it as his as he wills. Salvation is not of him who runs or of him, the man who wills, but it is of the will of God. The free will of God is key. The Bible teaches monergism. Salvation is an act of God, uh, not an act of man. Uh, So uh, let's go ahead and pick it up here, and we'll start and stop uh, as we go. You're a child of God. You're a child of God. Can you live any way you please? Absolutely. You're a child of God. Can you live any way you please? Um. And he says, absolutely. And this is, again, one of the the glaring problems, in addition to denying the sovereignty of God and salvation, 
there's a denial of regeneration, a denial of sanctification. He says, you can live any way you please. Well, what do you say to John 15, verse 14, where Christ says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Uh, what do you say in light of Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Or 2 Peter 1.10, give diligence to make your call and election sure. Uh, what do you even do with all the exhortations that we find in the uh, Apostle Paul to uh, flee fornication, uh, to um, to be involved in uh, prayer and the reading of scripture, etc. I was thinking of a, another um, passage related to this at the end of 2 Corinthians. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith, prove your own selves, know ye not that your own selves how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobate. See, it's reprobates, it's false professors uh, who do not live like transformed men. Um, and, and it is those who are truly converted uh, whose very natures have been changed by the power of God, who've been transformed. Now, they're not in the state of glory, uh, not until uh, our deaths and then ultimately at the final resurrection at the return of Christ will we enter into the state of glory. But even in this life, we begin to experience eternal life. Christ said he came that we might have life more abundantly. And so uh, Pastor Arnold is saying, nope, uh, you can be a Christian and there can be absolutely uh, no difference in the way that you live. But there's consequences. You can't live as you... Okay, so he's going to say, yeah, okay, you're, you're saved and you can do whatever you want, but remember, there are going to be consequences. And this seems to be the only thing that he uh, is going to hang on to here. Please and get away with it. You will reap what you sow. Amen. Your heavenly father who loves you so much it's going to be the tar out of you. Maybe take you home before your time. Now, this is interesting. He denies sanctification, but he he believes that the this so-called converted person who's completely unchanged by the gospel then can be punished uh, by God and even... Um, 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 beaten the tar out of by God and have his life shortened. He just doesn't expect. So God will punish this person, but he won't sanctify him. He's powerful enough to punish this person and give him his consequences, but he's not powerful enough through the indwelling spirit to transform this man's life. And even if he stumbles to lift him up and help him to uh, walk again in the faith. And so again, it's a very, it's a very, um, um, unusual teaching. It's really an antinomian teaching that's being uh, put forward here, a lawlessness. And I think this type of teaching and preaching has done a lot to propagate uh, easy believism and a lot of nominal Christianity, people who say, oh, I'm a Christian. Uh, yeah, I, I raised my hand. I walked the aisle uh, when I was five years old. And no, I haven't been to church since. No, I haven't been living a Christian life. No, I haven't been obeying the commandments of Christ. But I'm still a Christian, and I have sort of my my fire insurance so, so that I don't go to hell. Uh, but being a Christian has made absolutely no difference in my life. Um, let's continue. Had a lot of people over the years. They know the Lord. They're going to heaven. But they think they just play a little, have a little folly while they can. Play the fool while they can. But it is a price to pay. And you cannot escape. God will deal. And he will chase them. And maybe even take you home before your time. So, look there now in John 5.39. Okay. We're going to switch to another passage now. And this time it's going to be uh, John 5 and verse 39. So let's turn there and look at this passage if we can. Says, search the scripture. Jesus says this to these Pharisees. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify. 
to me that you might have life. Notice, they could have come and they could have received eternal life. Wouldn't you get that out of that verse? Okay, so uh, let, let's look at this. He uh, calls us our attention to John chapter 5 and verse 39. And John 5, 39, uh, it reads uh, as follows. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me, John 5, 40. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. And uh, uh, Pastor Arnold says, that the natural way to read this is uh, he tells these these Jewish opponents, of course, that's a great theme in John's gospel, Christ confronting these Jewish unbelievers and people who are supposed to be spiritual leaders, but who don't recognize who he is. And he stresses here, ye will not come to me. Um, and he says, this must imply that they were, they, that they were able to come to Christ, but they did not come to Christ. And our problem with this is it's a denial of the impact of sin. We are not spiritually able to come to Christ. If anything, this verse is a proof text for total depravity. Uh, Ye will not come to me. He doesn't say you could come to me, but you will not. He simply declares emphatically, ye will not man in his fallen state, will not come to Christ unless God himself intervenes and changes his heart. And so this is not a proof text for denial of Calvinism, so-called. This is actually a proof text in favor of man's inability, man's will in bondage to sin that can only be released by the intervention of the work of the Holy Spirit. The reason you don't have eternal life is because you won't come to me. <clears throat> it's not that you can't come. You would not. You would. Nope. Uh, that's not what Christ says here. He simply declares. He doesn't say you could come, but you don't. He says, ye will not. Would not believe. That's what it says. So why do they say what they're saying? They're blind to the Simple truth of what God's word has to say. See, when you begin to have one lie, then that lie leads to another lie that leads to another lie. See, they're using human philosophy, psychology, but not the word of God. It's against man's human nature to think. You can't tell me it's free. That's okay, let's pause here for just a moment. So he says we're blind, that um, we're liars. And that we're using human psychology and human philosophy. Well, let's think about this for a second. I, I think I read this passage last time. Let's go back to it again. John 1, verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Then look at John 1, 13. Which were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. See, you see what it says there in the opening chapter of John? Men do not receive Christ based on the work of their own will. They, they receive Christ when God uh, uh, regenerates them, when God uses his sovereign power. So our salvation is not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God. That's the context in which we must see the words in John 5.39 and John 5.40, ye will not come to me. And I was thinking about that. If you, if you look over, um, if you look over in John's gospel, if you've got that there and you look over, uh, for example, in, in John chapter eight, uh, where Christ uh, tells the same Jewish opponents uh, that they are not children of God. In fact, they are children of the devil. And so he doesn't say, oh, you're children of God. You could choose me. You could not choose me. No, he says, you will not choose me because your father is the devil. Look at, uh, let's see, John 8 and verse 42. Jesus said unto them, if God were your father, ye would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. 
Why do ye not understand my speech? Even because ye cannot hear my word. It's a matter of ability. Ye cannot hear my word. They are not capable of hearing the word. They are not capable of believing in Christ unless God sovereignly changes their hearts. And so it continues, verse 44, ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father, ye will do. Um, He says in verse 45, and because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. And so he doesn't present them as people who are standing at a great crossroads. They could choose Christ or they could reject him. He stands them, he see, he presents them standing at a crossroads, perhaps, but the way to believe in Christ is blocked, and the only way open to them is the way of their fallen natures, and that is to reject Christ. Ye will not. Now, friends, is that a psychological um, argument I've made? Is it a philosophical argument, or is it a biblical argument? And I would suggest to you it's a biblical argument, and it's based on biblical truth, not upon lies. Um, let's continue. That's too easy. You gotta do something. It can't be just you just believe and go to heaven. So he, now he's saying, oddly enough, that we are denying that salvation is a work of God's grace, and it's not conditioned upon the actions of men. But in fact. Uh, our position is the one that's taking seriously passage like passages like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Uh, we're saying grace is really free. It's really a free gift from God. Salvation is a work of God and not a work of man. And so um, let's listen, though, as he's going to continue somehow to say that we don't believe uh, in uh, that salvation is a free gift of God. Well, what do you believe? You have to believe what Christ did, what he said. Well, what did he do? You have to believe what Christ did and what he said. Now, he's presenting this. Now, it's interesting. Think about it. He's presenting basically a condition for salvation. Your salvation is not really a free gift of God. It's conditioned on what you believe. It's, a, it's conditioned on your work of belief. He died on the cross and paid for my sins. Well, what do I have to do? Believe he did it for me. What do I have to do? Um, can, <laughs> an, uh, uh, can someone who is unregenerate believe in God. That's not what Paul said in Romans 3. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's no one who seeks after God. And he's he's placing a condition on dead men to do something in order to be saved. Well, it's got to be more to it now. What if God in heaven says, only believe? But it got to be more. No, 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 no. That's the human part of you that says, I don't agree with God. So you're going to make your own way. So you make up religions and add to it. Yeah, you can believe, but you but but you don't live it. Now he's tying in the same thing, supposedly saying that Calvinism uh, requires some kind of super added works after salvation in order to keep one in the faith, even though we've said over and over again that. If we persevere in the faith, it's a work of God. We're saved by a work of God. We're kept in the faith by the work of God. As Christ said in John 10, no one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. And our salvation doesn't depend on us. And our remaining in the faith doesn't depend on us. And they don't get it. Now look there at the next statement. The air. God's grace is irresistible. Therefore, all those that God has chosen to save will have no choice but to respond. Okay, now he's reading from his notes again, and he's pointing out what he calls the error of irresistible grace. And so we're moving here to the eye in the tulip, and he's going to talk some about irresistible grace. 
this grace is irresistible. That's why once God gives you the faith, you can't resist it. Therefore, if you really get it, then persevering in the faith is automatic. And if you don't persevere and it's automatic, then that's time you really didn't have it and you really didn't have the faith and God really didn't choose you. Wasn't that a bucket of bolts? I wonder if he believes that the, that the Bible teaches that there are false professors. Um, we think about, for example, what Christ said in Matthew um, 7. I often call this one of the most frightening passages in the scriptures. As uh, Christ says in John, in, rather in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And so that's a description of false professors, those who claim that they've been changed, converted, that they call Jesus Lord, but there's no evidence of sanctification, of a desire, as Christ said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, to obey the commandments of Christ. Again, we're not saying that, that, uh, that a, a believer in this life can do that perfectly. He will continue to fall short, come short of God's glory. Uh, but the Bible teaches that there are false professors. But according to Pastor Arnold, apparently there are no false professors. There are people who can profess the faith and then blatantly continue to disregard, disobey the commands of Christ. And they're still good Christians. They might get spanked hard. Uh, but, you know, what I would say to that is uh, just as a parent here doesn't uh, discipline children who are not his own, I would say that God doesn't do the, the, the type of discipline he does for uh, his born-again uh, children that he does simply for those who are reprobates, who are, who are not truly his children, but whose father is the devil. But at, at any rate, we're talking about irresistible grace, and let's listen to what he continues to say. Only what he says here. The truth. Why is Christ rebuking these Israelites for not coming to him. Okay, I think we're still talking about uh, John 5.39. And so he, he's, he's read a version of what he calls the error uh, which uh, uh, of Calvinism. And now here's, his, uh, here's the truth. And again, I think we're back. Let me see if I can find it in John 5.39. If they had irresistible grace. Evidently, they could resist God's grace. Christ says, ye will not come to me. He did not say, you cannot come to me. Notice how they resisted the will of God in the Father. Well, of course, they were unregenerate. They were not being drawn by the Father. Um, so, yes, can, they, can, can unregenerate men uh, not reply to the word of God? Yes, they, 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 they can. They can resist. But the, the question is, we're talking about those whose hearts have been changed by God and those whom uh, the Father draws unto the Son. Following verse. Now look at this following verse. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, get this, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your Father did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one. Of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. You did it. You did it. Okay, again, this, I'm not sure what he's reading from, but he didn't give us a reference. Um, but what he's talking about are those whose wills are hardened. And of course, yes, do they resist? Absolutely, they do. Well, whatever will be, will be. This kind of gets on my nerves now. You know, he's been doing this throughout, you know, uh, I think it's the Doris Day song, K Sera Sera, as if we believe that the sovereignty of God is just a matter of whatever will be, will be. That's not what we believe. We believe in a sovereign God who actually knows, as Isaiah said, from the end, from the beginning. Uh, a sovereign God who actually sits on the throne and issues decrees. And uh, one who directs the course of history causes one king to rise, another to fall. Uh, the one for whom the nations are but a drop in the bucket. And so it's we don't believe in any arbitrary 
um, um, uh, uh, setting forth of history. We believe in God's divine sovereignty over all things, including every action. As Christ said, the bird doesn't fall in the field apart from uh, it being the Father's will. And so that's not whatever will be, will be. That's a sovereign God who has his hand uh, firmly steering the course and, and has directed the course and has decreed the course of history and then provides and brings it about uh, a God who is sovereign and does as he will among the inhabitants of the earth. They know it's not their fault. Did God hold them accountable? You're responsible. The reason Christ never set up his kingdom upon the earth when he came the first time, they rejected him. Well, that's kind of an interesting thought. He, he says the reason Christ didn't set up his kingdom on earth in his first advent was because men rejected him. So these men were more powerful than God. Um, of course, the, the, the biblical teaching is Christ did not come in his first advent to set up a polit political kingdom. He says to uh, Pontius Pilate in John 18, when he's on trial, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. And so uh, the will of God was not thwarted by the resistance of men. In his first advent, Christ's um, um, goal was never to set up a political kingdom. It's when he comes the second time. In his second coming, he will come with power and glory, and God will be all in all. Um, but in his first advent, he was not his his work was not thwarted. His will was not thwarted by sinful men. He perfectly completed the work, and he had no earthly kingdom to set up. Uh, his kingdom is not of this world. Why did he just give this irresistible grace? Because they were not the objects of uh, his saving election and his sovereign calling. Um, yes, uh, they, they, he left them. Uh, he passed them over to remain in their sinful state, in their unregenerate state. The doctrine of, of irresistible grace is about God's work towards those who are saved, not about his work towards the unsaved. Didn't happen. Look at the bottom of the page. Am I a Calvinist? After all this. All right, I'm going to pause here. I think he's getting to the conclusion asking about I, am I a Calvinist, but I'm going to go back to, to irresistible grace. And again, I want to I want to lay out some arguments, not based on psychology, not based on philosophy. But I want to look at some scriptural passages. And um, there are a couple of passages in John chapter 6, I think, that really stand out. Uh, in John 6, verse 37, Christ said, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. So that teaches uh, both that the, the persons who will be saved are given to the Son by the Father, and also they will persevere. They will not be cast out. Then in John 6, 44, Christ said, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. That's our key proof text for irresistible grace. How does an unregenerate man come to Christ. The father must draw him. The father must overcome and overwhelm his sinful resistance. Irresistible grace is an act of God's mercy. It's grace because he overcomes our sinful rejection of Christ. And then also in John 6, 65, um, we read uh, uh, these words, Christ said, therefore, I say, uh, therefore said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. See, we're the passive recipients. We receive from the father. We are drawn by the father. Um, 
just just reading again John six forty four uh, made me think of a passage that is found um, in my little uh, doctrines of of grace uh, book, and I'll I'll get this back on the full screen for just a moment. And of course, there's a chapter on irresistible grace, and I cite John six forty four. And this is on page 84 of my book. Let me just read a little bit of what I wrote there. I said, uh, we should take special note of John 6, 44, and its use of the particular language of divine drawing. The Greek verb here is elkuo. The same verb appears in John 12, 32, when Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Unless one wants to affirm universalism, the idea that all people are eventually saved regardless of their response to Christ, the all men in John 12, 32 should be taken as a reference to the fact that all kinds of people, that is Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, male and female, will be drawn to him. As previously noted in this study, biblical faith affirms the universality of the gospel, but not universalism. The point here is that God supernaturally draws those from all backgrounds who will be saved. That's what irresistible grace means. I continue here, page 84. It is also helpful to look at other examples of the use of the verb elkuo. Again, John uh, 6, 44, uh, we've got this verb uh, in English to draw. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me. Draw him. In Greek, it's elkuo. It's not a psychological argument, not a philosophical argument, biblical argument. In John 18.10, the same verb is used to refer in reference to Peter drawing his sword when he tried to defend Christ when Christ was arrested. In John 21.6 and John 21.11, it is used in reference to dragging a net full of fish when the risen Christ appears to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. And they have the tremendous catch. They draw or drag el kuo, the, the net to shore. In Acts 16, 19, and in Acts 21, verse 30, it is used in reference to Paul being dragged away by the authorities. Finally, in James 2, 6, it is used in reference to the rich dragging the poor into court. God the Father must draw or drag the unbeliever to Christ in the way a sword is drawn from the sheath, the sword does not unsheath itself. In the way fishermen carry their nets to shore. And in the way someone with power and authority compels another to come to court. This same stress on God's irresistible grace can, of course, also be found in the letters of Paul. And I give a couple of examples of this. Uh, for example, in Philippians 1.29, where Paul says, For unto you... It is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. See, it is given to you. You don't take it. It is given to you. By the way, um, also at the in this section, I have I discuss five observations on the doctrine of irresistible grace. If you're curious about this doctrine in particular and the five uh, points that I make about this doctrine, I say, first of all, it's based on radical, a radical biblical understanding of divine grace. Secondly, it's based on the sovereignty of God's free will. Third, it's based on the biblical understanding that apart from God's saving grace, man's will is totally enslaved to sin and to Satan. Fourth, this doctrine rests on the understanding of regeneration preceding faith. And then fifth, this doctrine does not suggest either that the elect are saved against their will or that there, there will be those among the reprobate who want to be saved, but whom God rejects. Um, and uh, one of the things I note here uh, is, uh, uh, well, I, I talk about two arguments. Um, let me just go ahead and read, read some more of this. The word irresistible in irresistible grace stresses the fact that God's purposes of grace cannot be thwarted. God's purpose will prevail in the end. God's will cannot be resisted. To avoid any confusion, some prefer to speak of God's efficacious grace or effectual grace. 
and I'll, I'll pause there. I, I, I could read some more there, but I'll just pause. And um, if you're interested in, in learning more about why we believe the doctrine of irresistible grace is not psychology, it's not philosophy, it's Bible. It's what the Bible teaches, uh, even if it offends the flesh of men. All right, let's go back and see if we can continue a little bit further uh, with the sermon. Let's see, we're at the 43, 28-minute mark. And uh, again, he's kind of, I think, getting towards the end, and he's asking, am I a Calvinist? Am I a Calvinist? Boy, it, I don't know. We're, is it? Is he going to say yes? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I don't think this is a cliffhanger. Uh, I don't think we're, 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 we're left with, with too much confusion about what his answer is going to be, but let's listen to how he responds. Would you classify me as a Calvinist? You better not. <laughs> we execute everybody that says that I Woo, I'm glad he doesn't have the power of the sword then. I'm glad he doesn't have the power of the civil magistrate. Uh, I'll execute anybody who calls me a Calvinist as if this is some kind of a dirty word. And I was just thinking about this. Think about in the history of uh, the church, in the time since the Reformation. Think about the fact that that the men who uh, were there um, uh, um, at the center of the Protestant Reformation, men like Martin Luther, men like John Calvin himself, the great reformers, they held to the sovereignty of God in salvation. This is, in fact, what distinguished them from the Roman Catholics who believe something that's probably closer to what Pastor Arnold is putting forward. And then think about uh, so many of the great missionaries and preachers Think about somebody like William Carey, who went into India, or Adoniram Judson, who went into Burma. They were confirmed Calvinists who believed in the sovereignty of God. Think about great preachers like Charles Spurgeon in England in the 19th century. And, and on down to our present day, uh, it has been the Calvinists who have been those who have loved evangelism, loved missions, and they, they go into it with confidence. Is it, is it really worthy of him saying that anyone who says he's a Calvinist should be executed? And I know he's saying that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but he's trying to make Calvinism uh, some sort of malicious title um, that, that Calvinists are like criminals, they're liars, and so forth. Um, let's continue. Should anyone be? Just for the record, please do not send any books to read, emails, or phone calls in order to straighten me out. My view is in concrete and will not be changed. I pray that you have been enlightened to the dangers of believing in Calvinism or believing that saints will or must persevere in the faith until the end. Calvinism may get you to temporarily change your life, but it will not nor cannot give you assurance that you will go to heaven. Well, I somewhat agree with that. No, Calvinism will not change your life. Calvinism will not give you assurance of salvation. Only God can do that. Only God can save you. Uh, only God can give you assurance. And so believing in any uh, theology, any systematic theology is not the thing that saves you. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, so with that, I agree. Now, it's kind of interesting. He gets to the end here and he says, don't send me any books. Don't send me any videos. Don't try to change my mind. Don't try to talk with me. Don't try to reason with me from the scriptures. I mean, did he read John 539? Search the scriptures. Um, what about the positive presentation in Acts 17 of the Bereans that they examine the scriptures to see whether what Paul said was correct? Um, is Is... Pastor Arnold not willing to reason from the scriptures with us? Uh, it, does he hold out any possibility that some of his views might be in error? I mean, I have some pretty clear convictions too, but hey, I'm listening to his sermon. I'm listening to him. I don't agree with it. I found many things that I think are, are, are really serious fundamental errors, but I'm willing to listen to him. But apparently um, that same courtesy is not going to be extended uh, to those of us who hold to Calvinism. 
Christ saved me, holds me, keeps me, and yes, Christ will preserve me until the end. If you have enjoyed this lesson, share it with a friend, or better yet, share it with a pastor. Take a copy. What if those pastors take the same stand that you do, that they won't listen to any reasoning from Scripture, they won't read any books or listen to any videos because um, they have their views and it's set in concrete? Give it and give it to some preacher. You know, the Bible says when all the world has preached the gospel to every preacher. Let him this hand represent you and me. This wallet represents sin. We all have sin in us. God. If you've been around probably evangelical or fundamental or conservative uh, Baptist circles, you've probably seen this illustration before. Uh, I, I imagine this is what he's going to do in a an illustration of. Um, the great exchange, our sin being placed upon Christ um, and Christ's righteous life being given to us. Um, but let's continue as he uh, offers this illustration. Says there is no difference. No difference. We are all sinners. And none of us can go to heaven because we have an old sinful nature. See, if we went to heaven the way we are, and we send down here, what would we do in heaven? We'd send there. Wait a second, though. He just told us that that uh, you can be a Christian and your nature is unchanged. Nothing changes about your life. Is he saying you have a changed nature, but there, then nothing changes in your life? That we should have no expectation of any change in your life? Very interesting. Then that heaven wouldn't be heaven anymore. So God won't let you in. Unless you're perfect. Nobody's perfect. So by your good work, you'll never be perfect. So oh, we're making no claims that a that a believer can be perfect in this life. So Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into this world, had no sin, had no sinful nature, never did anything wrong, lived for 33 years, and then had to die because he was God in the flesh. He could have called 10,000 angels, but the Bible says he loved us, hated our sin, because our sin separates us from him. So Jesus Christ, who had no sin, didn't have to die, so he took all the sins of all the world, paid for them on the cross, came back from the dead, says, go into all the world, preach this good news. He paid for your sins. And tell them all they have to do is believe it. And I'll put this. All they have to do is believe it. It's a really telling statement. When it comes down to the end, here's his, here's his final gospel presentation. What he's teaching is your salvation is dependent on something you do. It's dependent on you believing. So you are sovereign over your own salvation. It's not really God who saves you. It's really you who save yourself. If you will save yourself, you can be saved. If you believe you can be saved, if you do this work, then you can be saved. And of course, we believe that salvation is by grace through faith and that it is a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. And they'll get to go to heaven on what he did. Not on what they do, but on what he did. Another thing missing from this, this illustration as he puts it forward, I was, inter I was going to be interested to see what he did with it. He talked about the exchange of Christ's sin being placed, or, or of man's sin being placed upon a sinless Christ. But the other part of the great exchange is that Christ's righteous life is given to us. In Romans 6, Paul talks about Christ being raised from the dead so that we might walk in newness of life. Or um, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 5 and verse 21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we 
might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so the, the righteous life of Christ is also shared with us. It's not because, well, I'm going to heaven. Why? Because I, I stopped sinning. Why are you going to heaven? Well, because I lived a good life. No, that's not we, what we teach. You don't, you don't go to heaven by living a good life. You go to heaven because Christ lived a perfect life. And we are completely dependent upon the grace of God through Christ for our salvation. It has nothing to do with me. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works. But any man can boast. But you see the people who believe. And don't forget, though, after Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, there's also Ephesians 2.10, which has been completely unmentioned in this entire sermon, despite the number of times he's mentioned verses 8 and 9. Uh, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Well, I persevered in the faith, all in all, to their wonderful dedication. Look at man. I man. No, I'm a dirty, lousy, stinking, rotten sin, and I ought to bust hell wide open. Just like you. But I'll go to heaven. And if you trusted Christ as your Savior and Him alone, you'll go to heaven. Because He gives you as a free gift eternal life. If it's eternal life, how long will it last? If it lasts forever and all your sins are paid, where would you go to die? So can you know you're going to heaven before you die? And it has absolutely nothing to do with how I live. Me going to heaven has absolutely nothing to do with how I live. Ephesians 2.10. But, but then he's saying, I mean, it's, it's so confused. On one hand, he's saying the only way you get this free gift is based on your sovereign will. Um, that's the only way you get this supposedly free gift. And then once you once you determine for yourself whether you're going to uh, believe or not, then it doesn't matter how you live. Again, completely denying the teaching, not only of Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, but, but also of Ephesians 2, 10. ...was to show me how much God loved me. Do I want to live like the devil? Oh, part of me does. Hmm. Do I want to live like the devil? Yes. As Paul says in Romans 7, you know, that which we know we should not do, that very thing we do. Uh, but the expectation of a Christian is that he's one uh, 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 upon whom God is working an act of progressive sanctification. Uh, the believers are called in the scriptures, the saints, the holy ones, the set apart ones. Peter will say to the believers that he's writing to be ye holy. As God is holy. But there's also this new birth that God gave to me. This is the first mention now of the new birth uh, of regeneration. Um, there hasn't seemed to have been much of a place for this in his uh, in his soteriology, his doctrine of salvation. Uh, but let's see what he says of it. And the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I made up my mind years ago that I'm going to serve. If you're born again, your nature has changed. You had the indwelling Holy Spirit. Shouldn't there be some evidence of God's work in your life? Serve the Lord. But I don't serve the Lord to get to heaven. I serve him because I want to. I want to please the one who died for me. And I'll give him my whole life. Now, I'm interested in this. Is he, is, is Pastor Arnold just a special case because of his great piety and holiness? that he wants to, to, to live a life of gratitude. But there are other people who are saved, and just because they're maybe particularly perverse, they can be saved, but then never have any gratitude for that. I mean, again, a, a lot of this ends up in the end being about what a swell guy I am. I mean, what a swell guy. I let God save me. And then this shows you how big I am. I'm actually grateful for it. And and uh, I, 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 I try to give back a little bit to God because he gave me so much. Um, does that sound like biblical Christianity uh, to you? I, I want to serve him. 
I try to clean up my life and there's things that I don't do, but that's not to prove that I'm saved. It's just to show that I love the Lord. But see, I'm doing it for a totally different reason. They have to do it or go to hell. It becomes a question or doubt that they're really saved. If I mess up, I still know I'm saved. I can't go to hell. The best news in all the world. Why? Because I've got God right where I want him. He's bound by his word. Mm, man, think about this. This guy just said, I've got God right where I want him. He is bound by his word. I mean, who's sovereign here? I mean, what he's saying is, I have a greater sovereignty than God. I have bound God over. I'm in charge of God. I'm in control of God. Um, God is not sovereign over me. I'm sovereign over him. He is obligated to save me because of what I have done. I would like to ask God to close his eyes and bow his head and raise his hand if he would like to accept my sovereign belief in him so that I might give him the privilege of saving me. And then I'll give back a little. I'll even give back a little to him. He is bound and obligated to me. Does this have any semblance to what we read in the scriptures? Uh, isn't God the one actually who's sovereign? And he's the one who does as he will among the inhabitants of the earth. Will not the Lord of all the earth do right? Does not salvation belong to the Lord? Um, we don't hold anything over on God. He means what he says. He that believeth on me, the Son, hath, present tense, right now, everlasting life. I have everlasting life. I'm going to heaven when I die. Let's pray, shall we? All right, I, I think I'm going to stop here. Um, I, I don't, I'm not going to do um, a review of a prayer, uh, an act of piety. And so, um, let's see. Yeah. I think he's going to have the prayer and probably a few, uh, uh, maybe a few closing words, but we'll just stop it right there. Again, I hope that this hasn't been um, simply a, a a waste of time, or I certainly don't want to just um, sort of beat up on Pastor Arnold, or but I really did want to review this sermon in hopes that it might be edifying and helpful. Again, I was motivated, first of all, by a man within my own church. But hopefully others have um, have overheard, have listened in, and maybe you'll find some things uh, here in this discussion that have been helpful. Uh, again, I hope this has been profitable, helpful for those who are listening. We're done with the series. We'll move on to some other things now. Um, uh, again, uh, look, I will look forward to speaking to you in the next episode of Word Magazine. Till then, take care and may the Lord richly bless you.